the first book of Samuel and chapter 13 I want to read one verse and then I want to read a passage from the 16th chapter and from the 24th chapter 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 14 but now thy kingdom shall not continue the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath appointed him to be prince over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Chapter 16 and verse 6. And it came to pass when they were come that uh, Samuel looked on Eliah and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. And Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and with all of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look upon. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And then the 24th chapter. The 24th chapter. From verse 8. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and did obeisance. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearkenest thou to men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord had delivered thee today into my hand in the cave. And some bade me kill thee, but mine eye spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not, know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand. And I have not sinned against thee, though thou huntest after my life to take it. The Lord judge between me and thee, 
and the Lord avenge me of thee, but my hand shall not be upon thee. As saith the proverb of the ancients, out of the wicked cometh forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be upon thee. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? The Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and thee and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of thy hand. And it came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I. For thou hast rendered unto me good, whereas I have rendered unto thee evil. And thou hast declared this day how thou hast dealt well with me, forasmuch as when the Lord had delivered me up into thy hand, thou killest me not. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good for, for that which thou hast done unto me this day. And now, behold, I know that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thy hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord, that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me, and that thou wilt not destroy, destroy my name out of my father's house. And David sware unto Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men get them up unto the stronghold. Shall we bow together in a word of prayer? Lord, we just need you this evening and we are so thankful that we can depend upon you. Lord, this is your service and your ministry and we are your people. And Lord, you have made provision for us for this time in a specific and particular way. And Lord, we don't want to rely upon our own energies or our own talents or gifts, neither upon in speaking nor in hearing. Lord, we want to avail ourselves of that which thou hast provided for this evening's time, that anointing which thou hast given us in the person of the Holy Spirit. We appropriate that anointing now, Lord, for the speaking and for the hearing, that this time may be a living time, alive with your presence, alive with your speaking and working. And we shall give you all the praise and all the glory in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. In the times that have been my responsibility, <clears throat> I have felt a burden to share with you uh, f uh, from four of the characters that lead up to the establishment of the kingdom, of the, the building of the house of God, and the fulfillment of God's purpose. Those characters are Samuel, Saul, David, and Solomon. And we have already considered Samuel who in many ways is the essential and fundamental character for the whole. Uh, 
he was uh, at the turning point. But I'm not going to talk any more about Samuel. It's recorded, and, uh, and if you want to, you, I'm sure, can get the tape. And we have also considered the tragic figure of Saul. And um, we have seen that that carnal child of God, that man of flesh, even though there's so much noble about him and gifted about him, there's so much that's decent about him, yet he cannot come finally to the throne. His kingdom cannot be established. Now, this evening, I want to consider David. And of course, David is one of those characters that forever afterwards has become a household word. As soon as we consider the very name of David, we consider that which is of God. We actually think of the Lord Jesus, great David's greater son. It is amazing the influence, just like Moses, just like Abraham. So it is with David. Everyone, every child of God, at least has some understanding of David. And it is all the more interesting because um, David actually, in some ways, fell more deeply than Saul. And that's why I suppose some Christians have a great sympathy for Saul. Because they almost feel it was, they feel in some ways almost unjust what happened to Saul. Because David did a thing that even Saul didn't do. He arranged for a very faithful man, a very faithful child of God, to be left alone in the front line of the battle so that he would be killed. And David did it because he wanted that man's wife. And you know the whole story. I don't have to tell you. It is a terrible story. The story of David and Bathsheba. Saul never fell as deeply. And yet Saul is rejected from the throne. And David, his throne is established. Even more remarkable, once David confessed his sin and returned to the Lord, the Lord made Bathsheba the mother of the two men that are in the messianic line, Solomon and Nathan. Isn't that amazing? Instead of it being the son of David's first wife, or maybe of Abigail, it is this terrible sin, this terrible fall, once confessed, the Lord wove it into his purpose, and it leaves us with an enormous problem, because we wonder why did the Lord deal so drastically with Saul and so mercifully with David. Then again, David did another thing uh, that was a sin. He had been told specifically that he should not number the people. 
all the nations around Israel numbered their populations so that they could crow over one another who had the greatest uh, population and who had the greatest birth rate and who had the more men than the women and all the rest of it. Um, this is a particularly um, Middle Eastern uh, habit. And um, uh, uh, David had been told at the that they must not number but he numbered the people and then you remember a plague began and he saw the angel of the Lord standing with his sword over Jerusalem and then he realized that he had sinned before the Lord and when he confessed his sin the amazing thing is that he discovered the place where the temple should be built that angel stood over the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. And in that moment, David discovered that the central purpose and burden of his heart to build the house of the Lord, he had discovered through his sin, he had discovered the place that God was going to build his house. Now this presents us with such a problem. What is David's secret? How is it that David can fall and be restored and his very sins be woven into the purpose of God? So that, um, that somehow or other, as you look back, you almost want, did the Lord predestine these sins? I mean, the Lord must have known that Bathsheba was going to be the mother of Solomon and the mother of Nathan. You have one pedigree in Matthew. You have another pedigree in Luke. One is through Nathan, one is through uh, Solomon. And um, both of them are the, me of the, me of the messianic pedigrees. I mean, it is unbelievable. It almost makes us wonder, can we sin that grace may abound? Of course not. But it, it, why does the Lord reject Saul, who had so many good qualities, who, 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 right to the end of his life, was always vacillating, being sorry and, and saying the most wonderful things like he did to David. Now I see that you will be king and that your kingdom will be established forever. Uh, as so many other things, and yet he's rejected. Saul dies with only a word, a depressive word, on his lips by his own sword and David dies with his lips speaking of the Messiah that was to come it is a secret that if you and I can discover it can change our whole lives it can bring us to an understanding of the grace of God and an understanding of that kind of character which goes right through to the throne. Not one of us is perfect. Some of us think we're perfect. Especially when we're younger. But if we live long enough, we discover that we are not perfect. Even the most noble and the decent amongst us we're all capable of the grossest and most depraved sin. 
But with the Lord, there is mercy. Where there is repentance, genuine repentance, and where there is a heart for the Lord and a desire for reality, a desire for absolute sincerity, then the Lord can do uh, so much. So, I believe this evening, when we talk about David, we come to the heart of this matter. What is his secret? First of all, this man is a man who has his own direct experience of the Lord. In one sense, David steps into history with the story of Goliath. Actually, that's where he steps into history. We, of course, know the secret visit of Samuel. We know that Samuel already knew from the Lord that the Lord had rejected Saul. We also know that Samuel paid a secret visit to Jesse because the Lord had said that one of Jesse's sons was going to be the king that God desired and uh, longed for. But actually David only becomes publicly known and recognized with the story of Goliath. And um, in that marvelous uh, story of David and Goliath, which I imagine everyone in this place knows, if you don't know anything else in your Old Testament, you at least know the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17 you you know that we have discovered something about uh, uh, David this victory that David had over Goliath was not some sudden heroic uh, gesture some sudden emotional surge in him that took him out against Goliath, there was something that had already happened in the young David's heart. It is interesting how again and again, this is his word, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies or the hosts of the living God? Now, isn't it strange that Saul didn't have those words on his lips? Isn't it strange that David's brothers, all of them magnificent, not one of them had these words on their lips? Isn't it interesting that in the whole army of Israel, all mobilized, all brought there for war, for battle with the Philistines, not a single one had this attitude or this spirit. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the army? of the living God. I say that that reveals that David already had an understanding of the God of Israel. He had his own revelation. 
He had his own experience from within his own circumstances, within his own situations. He was only a shepherd lad at that time. He was kept the youngest, as is so often all around me. I see them, these little boys looking after sheep and goats. They sit out there. I took a group only, um, what is it now, about six weeks ago? Uh, I wish I hadn't, to, to be honest, but that's another story. I took this group out in one of the wadis, the place where Elijah was fed by the ravens, and as we walked along this, this path with this great drop, that's why I wished I hadn't taken them, this great drop down one side because of the, some of the ladies who insisted on coming were nearly paralyzed since there were no rails. I don't know if they thought they were going to have all iron rails all down there to hold on to, but anyway, they were entranced by this little lad who was on the other side of the ravine with about 300 sheep and goats, and he sat on a rock and he played a little homemade um, flute, and he entranced them with his melodies and even more entranced them when his goats got out of hand and he stood up and he said something was not in Arabic not in Hebrew but goat language it was quite extraordinary all the goats stood still like this the whole lot of them and then he threw some stones and suddenly the recalcitrant ones ran back into the into the herd Oh, these folks of mine, they were so entranced, they forgot me altogether and nearly went over the edge. That's where I nearly had a bad time. <laughs> they were so fascinated by this little boy. Now, this happens all around us, I mean, just for a, a little walk from where I live. And the, the fact of the matter is, David was the youngest. That's the, that's the job of the youngest. So in one sense, the youngest and the most insignificant. Because in our culture, the firstborn is always the almighty. The firstborn, everything is for the firstborn. He is just everything. Mother's favorite, father's favorite, everybody's favorite. All the brothers are in fear of him. He's the firstborn. And the last, especially when he comes in a whole great series, and there he is at the very end, does nothing but the sheep and the goats for him. And there this boy was out there in the valleys. He could have felt, he could have become bitter. He could have had an inferiority complex. He could have felt he was overlooked. He could have been filled with anger at, toward his brothers or toward his father and his mother. But instead, he worshipped the Lord. Some of his loveliest, earliest psalms, if we accept Jewish tradition, some of his earliest and most beautiful psalms come from his youth. When he was out there with those sheep and with those goats and the wadis, the hills, the mountains and valleys of uh, Judea and uh, Judah and Benjamin. And, um, you know, it is an amazing thing that there in those valleys and in those mountains, alone with his sheep and with his goats, he had his own experience of the Lord. When Saul called him to him and said, how can you, you're just a boy, you're just a youth, you're, you're, you're in your teens, in your, not even yet, in your late teens, how in the world can you go against Goliath? And David said, let me tell you, your, your uh, majesty, uh, when I was keeping my sheep and goats in the wilderness, 
a lion came and took one of the lambs in its mouth and I went after that lion and I took the lamb out of its mouth and I took the lion by its beard and I took his head off of it. And he said, a bear came after and I did exactly the same. And he said, it was because the law, because the um, uh, the enemy as it were if we were to put it in New Testament language the enemy was robbing me of what was my responsibility damaging the flock spoiling the flock that which was my responsibility and he said who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God I will do the same thing with him I think Saul swallowed three or four times. This was unbelievable. Now I can only say from my own little experience that if I met a lion, I'm not quite sure that I would do anything like this at all. I think I would fly. The nearest I've got to it was when I was a huge great old boar, a male pig, charged me. I've never been so frightened in all my life. It was all very well for this other brother who was a very phlegmatic individual to say, stand still, stand still, he said, and when he comes near you, jump to one side. It's all very well for us to think, oh, you know, this is a wonderful fairy story. This is legend. Put yourself in the same experience. This lad could have easily said, listen, I've got all these sheep. One lamb. What's one lamb? It's one meal. One meal. Dad won't worry about that. He'd rather have me alive. But there was something about David... It wasn't just pride, it wasn't arrogance, it wasn't presumption. He had an experience of the Lord, and by the Lord, he did it. He had a responsibility, and he felt that he needed to rely on the Lord, even as a little, a young fellow. He needed to rely on the Lord to discharge that responsibility. And when those enemies came and sought to, to take away that which belonged to him, to his responsibility, he was accountable for, then he trusted the Lord and slew those enemies in the name of the Lord. This reveals to us that David had his own direct experience of the Lord. Our tradition tells us that the 23rd Psalm was written when David was in his teens. And because of the simplicity of that beautiful little psalm, which I imagine just like this story of David and Goliath, if you know no other psalm, that psalm you know. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. And so on. This marvelous little psalm reveals an experience of he restoreth my soul. This is a teenager speaking. He restoreth my soul. He leads me in Hebrew. He leads me in the sheep tracks of righteousness. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My head thou anointest with oil. Surely goodness and mercy shall tail me, shall follow me, shall tail me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a teenager speaking. He had got a lot more experience yet to make. But the fact is, this man had from the very beginning his own personal direct experience of the Lord. Why is it that some people only think that when you get onto, into ministry can you have experience? Why do some people think that you have to be a missionary before you can have direct experience of the Lord? Why do some people think that only if you're in Christian work can you have a direct experience of the Lord? My dear friend, your kitchen can be the place where you have direct experience of the Lord. Your family, bringing up the children can be where you have your direct experience of the Lord. Your business can be the place where you have your direct experience of the Lord. It's the way you look at it. Do you look upon your family? Do you look upon your business as something given you by God? A responsibility that you're accountable for and that you're not going to lose anything of it. You're going to trust the Lord for that responsibility. You're going to give good account in the end for what he has entrusted to you even if it is the most simple things, however young you are. David had his own direct experience of the Lord. Right at the very beginning, he understood something about the house of the Lord. Again, one of our traditions tells us this, which is very beautiful, that David's mother was a weaver of the tabernacle veil. And so the story goes in the Talmud that, that David watched her as a little boy weaving with some of the other women that huge veil for the, for the tabernacle and he asked her what it was about and she told him this veil is for the tabernacle but it is all separated and in a mess. There is no permanent place for the Lord to cause his name to dwell. Whether this is a true story or not, something must have happened to David very early on. For he talks about, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What is he talking about? He is not a priest. He is not from the Levitical tribe. What is he talking about? That he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever unless somehow something had dawned upon him concerning the purpose of God to have a place where the Lord's name would dwell that would represent the Lord where the Lord's glory would be expressed. I say this is something that began very early and here we see something in David. Note also another thing about this, this matter of direct experience of the Lord. S 
David refused to wear Saul's armor. I always find this one of the most lovely parts of this whole story when this great, huge, six foot five fellow with great broad shoulders looks down upon David, who was also an athletic boy. I mean, he was a, a not, but he wasn't, he wasn't six foot five. He was apparently the shortest of the family. And, um, but he was good looking, that's what it says. And it's a very beautiful thing it says in Hebrew, he has fair eyes. You could see something in his eyes. We always say the eye is the window of the soul. That's what it means. There was something inside that shone out of David's eyes, and they noticed it. Now, my dear friends, Saul got such a fright when this boy stood before him, and he said, now listen, you can't go out against that great giant. You know he's a seven-foot-something fellow. Enormous. I mean, his, his spear is like a weaver's beam. I, 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 he, I mean, you'll just be, you'll be just dog's meat. <laughs> so now I'm going to dress you up. Come here. Bring my armor. Come here, David. Put my armor on him. Well, they began to put this great heavy male stuff upon David, clunk, 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 on and then, and then the sheaves on his legs and, and then his feet shod and then they put the thing on his, uh, his breast and then they gave him this great sword in one hand they said, and David couldn't move. You, I, I can see it, I don't know if you've got an imagination, but I can just see it, I can just see David trying to lift up his, his feet like this and, and he says, Sir, I can't go out in this. And Saul, of course, <laughs> Saul must have looked down through the head and saw David somewhere down below and sort of said, oh, take it off, take it off. And then David took his own sling, his own pouch, his own staff, and he selected his own five pebbles. What is the Lord saying? Better to go out with what is ours than what is somebody else's. Oh. <laughs> it's all of our Christian life and work is spent trying to get into somebody else's armor. It is so silly. In the end, you can only work with what the Lord has given you and done with you and what he has taught you to use. This was David's experience. He had no experience of Saul's sword. He had no experience of Saul's javelin. He didn't know how to hold Saul's shield. Maybe in time he would be able to, but at that point he couldn't use any of it. But he had every real experience with those stones and with his catapult. These were things he had sat for hours on in, sort of, I, well, I tell you, the, you know, the best way that these shepherds get these goats is with a sling and a small stone. They just pick it up and you see, you see a goat jump up right at the side and run back into the thing. I, I saw a lady in the Sinai with a whole great thing of sheep, all black and white, not sheep, but goats. And um, suddenly I saw her take up a stone and she flung it right 
right into the midst of this seething mass of little goats, and one little goat leapt into the air and belted off into another herd. She had spotted that one goat that wasn't hers. How she knew, I don't know, because they were all exactly the same colour and they all looked alike to me, but she knew it wasn't her goat, and the little goat knew it. He went belting back into his own herd. I was absolutely flabbergasted. My dear friends, David knew how to use a sling and pebbles. He had to use them every day. They were his normal uh, 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 weapons, if you like. Um, the, um, the uh, what do you say, the thing of his trade, the... Uh, the tools of his trade, that's right. These were the tools of his trade. I mean, he, he, he was used to these things. Doesn't this teach you something and me something? We all try to ape someone that we think is great in the Lord. We should imitate their faith. Not to try and be them. We should imitate their faith. And their devotion. But you have to be you. And I have to be, <laughs> I, me, um, uh, we have to be ourselves in the Lord and we have to have our own experience of the Lord. One last thing on this matter. This is a man that the Lord says, I have sought me a man after my own heart. A man after God's own heart is a person, however poor, who has his, however young, who has his own direct personal experience of the Lord Jesus. He has his own experience and revelation of the Lord. It's not second hand. And this last thing I want to say in this is look at David's Psalms. Have we anywhere in the whole word of God a hymnology, a psalmody, that is anything like David's. I don't know what these liberal theologians, I doubt that we'll ever see them in the kingdom, but I, I had the biggest problem with these liberal theologians. They take everything away from everybody. They take away all these psalms from David. As soon as they see his name there, they say, it's not David. <laughs> it seems as if it's like a red rag to a bull. I don't understand it. Who gives them the right to say it's not, it's not David. But if we follow the tradition, which is within our, our Bible, then we have a large number of these psalms that are David's psalms written over his whole life from his youth to his old age. And we have an ex the most amazing revelation of experience. When you're in trouble, is there anybody else that speaks to you like David speaks to you? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I only know myself. Maybe it's because I'm Jewish. I don't know. But I find that David speaks to me in a way that nobody else speaks. I understand David. I read the Psalms. When I'm in trouble, I always find the Lord gives me something from David. And I find, well, isn't that amazing? Because this man had such an experience of the Lord. Such a Amazing experience of the Lord. He learned things that believers under the new covenant don't seem to learn. 
He learned how to praise the Lord in dark days. He learned how to overcome through worship. He learned how to go forward in faith. He learned that you had to be absolutely real when you'd say, you've sinned. You've got to call it by its name and face it in all its ugliness and ask the Lord to create in you a new heart. Here it all is, the evidence, not of second-hand experiences, not as if David studied the life of Abraham and mugged up all these psalms based on Abraham's experience, or studied the life of Moses and then somehow or other based it all on, on Moses' experience. Of course he quotes Moses, of course he quotes Abraham, but it's his own experience of the Lord. Here is a man after God's own heart. Here is the character that comes to the throne. It's not a character that cannot fall. It is not a character that doesn't have passions just like you and me. It is not a, a character that cannot get horribly enmeshed in evil. But it is a character that wants the Lord and wants something first-hand, direct, with the Lord. That's the first thing I want to say. And then here is the second thing. This man after God's own heart fights God's own battles. Now this is a very important thing and I want to be very clear on this. I go all around the world and I have to tell you to be perfectly honest that most Christians are fighting their own battles. Everywhere I go, I see fellowships and assemblies in confusion, in division, in faction, and here there are people fighting battles. They're not the Lord's battles at all. It's normally all coming out of jealousy, all coming out of rivalry, all coming out of ambition. It's, it's, uh, people try to make it all spiritual. It's not spiritual at all. It's Saul. It is the character of Saul, even with his nobility. Even with his decency, even with his magnanimous nature at times, it's Saul, it can't come to the throne, it can't stay on the throne. David fought not his own battles, he fought God's battles. Now in one sense I suppose we could say that the lion and the bear were David's battles. After all, from one point of view, huge things to do with the whole nation and to do with the whole great fulfillment of God's purpose didn't in one sense hang on the, that lion and then that bear, although from another point of view, perhaps they did. But that was the kindergarten. That was the school. Before long we find that David is fighting battle after battle and what Joshua and the children of Israel never dealt with. David, by the Spirit of the Lord, deals with one after another of these enemies. Joshua, for instance, was never able to take Jerusalem. They said it was too strong. They said there were iron chariots. They said, we can't do it. It's a Jebusite stronghold. So all they had to do was put their feet down. That's all the Lord said, wheresoever you put the sole of your feet, I will give it to you. But they said, no, we can't do it. It's an impossible, it's invincible. And so it was left for hundreds of years until David's men put their feet down 
on the water shaft that went up within the walls of the Jebusite stronghold and in that moment it fell to the Lord. It was the Lord's battle. This Jerusalem which the Lord had chosen for the place where his name was to dwell, David took it. And then all these others, all the ites, the Gargashites and the Hivites and the Amorites and the Amalekites and all the other ites that, are, that, that Joshua should have dealt with. David takes them one after another. I know some Christians get very upset about all this, but still, I mean, David took them one after the other and he dealt with them. These were God's battles. See his faith expressed in this battle uh, with... Uh, with Goliath because that gives us the key to all the other battles he fights look at uh, 1 Samuel and, and chapter 17 and verse 46 and 47 this day will the Lord this is what David actually said to Goliath publicly it's one thing to say it privately it's another thing to say it publicly this day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand and I will smite thee and take thy head from off of thee and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day unto the birds of the heaven and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand now this is a youth speaking this is he's not even in his late teens here he is speaking publicly all those other children of Israel should have been ashamed they were grown up adults some of them trained battle trained and not one of them had this kind of faith what faith this is this was the Lord's battle David didn't see it as an <clears throat> as a avenue for him to come to prominence he didn't see this battle with Goliath as some means by which he was going to catch the public eye. He didn't even see it as a means to ministry. You know, as if he was going to be something amongst the people of God. He was just so absolutely shattered that no one could see that this great Philistine had challenged the Lord. And he said, if this Philistine has challenged the Lord, the Lord will take him on. And if no one else will be with the Lord in this, I'm going to be with him. My dear friend, when you and I have our battles with one another, I, I know this will shock some, but when you and I have our battles with one another in the work of the Lord or in the fellowships that we represent, the Lord leads us to it. The more we fight with one another, the more we squabble, the more we try to put one another down, the more we try to devalue one another, the more the Lord just says, get on with it. If you want to fight like that, you can do it. But oh, the most wonderful thing is when it's the Lord's battle. Then you don't have to fight for your reputation and you don't have to fight for your ministry and you don't have to fight for your status and you don't have to fight for any position of glory all you have to do is stand out of the way and let whoever it is collide with the Lord so simple 
so simple. All David was, in one sense he said, Goliath, you've taken on the Lord. If you think you can defy the Lord and frustrate the purpose of God and enslave God's three people, you have another thing coming. The Lord will make mincemeat of you. And the Lord made mincemeat of him. It's unbelievable that great lumbering giant came out with his weaver's beam and his great... See, I mean, he could have dropped it on David and it would have crushed him. He could have bashed him with the thing and he would have finished down and he said, Am I a dog that you come out with me to me with a stave and a, and a pouch and a catapult? And David took that and flung his stone. And one stone, isn't it amazing? Some people have often asked me, why did he select five? He only needed one. <laughs> well, I suppose the others were insurance. I don't know. I mean, I have no idea why he took five. I think it's beautiful, that's all. <laughs> he only needed one. And one small stone. Can you imagine it? If I had had you all there and we and we'd been watching this great battle and I took this little pebble, no bigger than that, and, and slim, do you understand what I mean? This little pebble, I put it here. And then I took this great uh, javelin and I put it here. And then I took this little catapult and I put it here, just about that size, that's all, leather for tongue. And then I put the great big shield of Goliath here. You would have said, oh, this is presumption. This is presumption. This is ridiculous. I think this goes to the heart of this whole matter. David had learned. Don't fight your own battles. Fight God's battle. Now, there's a lot more that I could say about this matter in this, in, in this question of fighting the Lord's battles, and I think I'll, I'll leave it. All I want to say, say is this, that uh, uh, the, the New Testament puts it very beautifully. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and in verse... <coughs> um, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on life eternal whereunto ye were called. Here is a fight that is not in one sense your fight. It is the Lord's fight. God means you to have life and more life and more life. He wants you to be an overcomer. He wants you to be a good soldier of the Lord Jesus. But you cannot become a soldier if you're fighting your own battles with other believers or with your unsaved boss, or with unsaved relatives. That's not the Lord's battle. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on life eternal whereunto ye were called. Oh, isn't that wonderful? No wonder later on in 2 Samuel chapter 8, you have a whole list of all the enemies of God's people subdued, one after the other. And then there's something else wonderful about this. Listen to me in this matter. 
When you get a person with his own experience of the Lord and someone who fights God's battles, it becomes infectious. Before long, others who have an experience of the Lord and who want to fight God's battles, they join you. And you find all David's mighty men gather together for a long time. For a long time, they were in a cave called the Cave of Adullam. This is the most amazing cave I've been in. It's a huge labyrinth of caves in one of our great wadis that goes down to the Dead Sea. We know it's that cave because it's the only cave that has a spring of fresh water in it. You couldn't possibly keep 400 men in a cave with all their families and everything else. What an amazing... I remember when I was first saved, I didn't know anything about the Bible. There was an old lady in the fellowship and she was always playing in the prayer meetings about the cave of Abdullah. Um, and I couldn't think what was going on in Abdullah's cave because she was always saying, all these people are in the cave of Abdullah, Lord. We're in that cave of Abdullah with you. She meant Abdullah, of course, but still, there was another matter. But it stuck in my mind long before I even knew the Bible. When I find, finally found out that it was the cave of Abdullah and that these people, all of them in debt, all of them in trouble, all of them restless because they felt things were not going right in the nation. They gathered to, to David in that cave and God trained them into a marvelous spiritual commando force that was to spearhead the way in the end for the whole nation. So, dear child of God, it's a marvelous thing when you see these mighty men of David. When David finally dies, after we have his last words, we have a whole record of all the mighty men. How this one did this, how that one did that. These great mighty men who had the same direct experience of the Lord, the same experience of faith, and the same fighting the same battles of the Lord. Then uh, there is a third thing about the man after God's own heart who comes to the throne. It's very simple and it is the exact opposite of Saul. He is a man who waits for the Lord. I can never stress this or emphasize it enough. The man who is a man after God's own heart will wait for the Lord and will not move until the Lord moves him, until he gets his direction. <clears throat> I find this so amazing because David's character was produced through this waiting for the Lord. You know, David, and I believe it was the Lord, the, David had the opportunity to shorten this waiting period, not once, but again and again and again and again. But he learned to wait. He knew he could shorten it with the arm of the flesh. And that's what Saul always did. But David learned. It's no good. If I do it with the arm of flesh, it will just be flesh. And the result will be trouble and division and faction. There will be no glory. So we have this amazing story of David and you know this waiting is not easy don't think that David just went off to his marvelous home here in Santa Barbara as I see some of them just down the road palaces in great 
gardens, shut the iron gates, and went in and lay down on some silken bed in an air-conditioned room, and had the most wonderful time while servants waited upon him. Oh, no. This waiting for the Lord meant that David was hounded from pillar to post. He had to sleep out in the wild, in the rough, sometimes up in the mountains, sometimes in holes of the earth, sometimes in wadis. This great crag that we call today Masada, uh, Masada, I think is the way you would understand it, Masada. Um, Masada means fortress or stronghold. And when it says here, and David got up into the stronghold, we believe that that was it, because it is the one great crag that is invincible. And it's right near to Engedi, where these other, some of these other things took place. But you know, it is an interesting thing. David's experience ranged over a whole peer, um, um, uh, area that was something like, I suppose, in all about 80 miles by, by about 30 miles or more. Now, to you Americans, that's nothing. <laughs> Many of you do that every day when you go to work. But I mean, um, for us, it is enormous. And uh, David, he was hounded from pillar to post in this whole area. Never was he alone. Now, if you were harried day and night and you know someone was hunting you like a, an animal and meant to kill you, what would you do if suddenly he fell into your hand? Don't you think you would say, Oh, Lord, thank you. Of course, it's beautifully put in the scripture. It happened two or three times, but the two really vivid accounts was one when when, as it puts it very discreetly, Saul went into a cave to cover his feet. This is the Hebraism. It meant he went to the bathroom. And while he was in the bathroom, he'd left his clothes outside. David came. And the, David's men said, The Lord has given him into your hand. He's trapped. He's in the cave. He's got to come out. He's naked. We'll have him. He's mince meat, just like Goliath. And David said, you don't lay a hand on him. He's the Lord's anointed. It's not the Lord's time. Oh, David could have shortened it so much by that time, couldn't he? Then another time, Saul went to sleep with his great C&C next to him, chief of staff, Abner, and uh, his great standard at his head. And David's men crept up and David's men said let me do it Abishai said let me do it he said I'll do it in one blow he won't even know what's hit him I will put a javelin right through him and pin him to the ground and that's the end then we can go home and we can live like human beings instead of being hunted like wild animals and David said don't do it don't touch the Lord's anointed. Oh, my dear friend, the whole of Christian work is filled with people who can't wait. They've always got to get to the top. They want the platform ministry. They want the leadership. They want to be apostles or prophets or, or, or pastors or teachers or I don't know what. I, I, personally, I don't know why. 
Once you're in the work, I thank the Lord for what he's given me, but I can't understand why people are so fascinated and entranced by it. <laughs> to me, all it is is work and activity and burden and trouble and wherever you go, a thousand people pour their problems into your heart. <laughs> and every one of them expects you to sit and listen and react. It is amazing to me. And yet these people want to be apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists and servants of the Lord and I don't know what else. I don't know what is wrong with them. But this is what they want. And they can't wait for it. They get so jealous. They're so full of ambition. They have to put others down to get up to the top. It is amazing. They can't wait for the Lord. If some of you are troubled because people are speaking against you, and don't think anyone's told me anything. <laughs> I am perfectly safe saying this. Because I know that wherever I go I can say this and everybody thinks, someone's told him something. If there are brothers here and everyone, many people are speaking against you and disparaging you and devaluing you and saying you are nothing and all the rest of it, let them. Suffer it. Wait for the Lord. Don't fight back. It is a good thing to bear the yoke in your youth. It's a good thing to be disparaged sometimes and devalued so that you learn the lesson of waiting. My dear friend, this matter of waiting for the Lord is such an important element in the character of the one who will come to the throne. Nobody will ever come to the throne of God and reign with Christ who doesn't know what it is to wait for the Lord. Now this waiting for the Lord will involve you sometimes in very much suffering. It is truly the fellowship of his suffering. It is a time when you go down into the depths. It is a time when you're broken. It is a time when you, are, you feel as if you're impoverished. If you shorten that time, you make sure that you will not come to the throne. There is no shortcut out of this. This is the Lord's discipline. Actually, we learn more when we wait for the Lord than when we actually are in leadership. We learn so much when we have to wait. There's a lot more I could say on this, but you know, David never came to the end of this. You would have thought he would have learned, and now the Lord had got him on the throne. First he came, he was crowned king at Hebron, and then seven and a half years later, he was crowned king of all Israel. First he was crowned king of Judah and Benjamin, and then he was crowned king of all of Israel. Seven and a half years later. And you would have thought, now, now it's all over with. Now it's all past. Now I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the ministry. I'm in what I was called for and what 
Samuel anointed me for. <clears throat> but he doesn't go so very far. And his own son, Absalom, the one he loved more than all his other sons, so magnificent to look at, so athletic, so gifted, he led a rebellion against his own father and it broke David's heart. And the great and mighty men of David, especially that hard man that was David's chief of staff, Joab, Joab, he said, let us kill him. But David said, no, this is the Lord. Do you remember? David said, it is the Lord. And David went out as a refugee. You remember how Shimei cursed him as he went out? And someone said, let me kill him. And David said, no, it's the Lord. Let him curse. It's an amazing story, isn't it? David not only waited for the Lord and never grasped that throne, but when he was there, he learned to let it go when a challenge was made. No wonder he came back to it. And no wonder God said, I will establish his throne forever. And no wonder the Lord revealed to him that there would come one of his seed, of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, that would sit upon his throne and reign forever. I think David must have died with the most marvelous sense of fulfillment. Even if in some way he knew that his sons would go off the rails, there was going to come one in the end of his seed that would sit upon that throne forever. Now that leads me to the last thing I want to say this evening uh, just quickly because we shall take it up again with Solomon but this man after God's own heart is a man whose own heart and life are centered in God's purpose. In other words, let me put it this way. Whatever is on God's heart is on this one's heart. This is the most marvelous thing about David. He so wanted to build this house of the Lord. Almost as if he felt it was the meaning of his life, the significance of his life was to see this house of the Lord built and and perhaps the greatest cross that ever came to him was when the Lord said, you shall not build it. David could have ret retraced his steps and sort of said, why has the Lord done this to me? Why? He could have gone under a cloud and been of disillusionment and disappointment even with the Lord. He could have been offended with the Lord. You know, many believers get offended with the Lord. Oh, I hear it all the time. They come to me and say, why did the Lord do this? 
And although they won't actually come out in the open and really go for the Lord, I know what's there. I know it in my own heart. We're offended with the Lord. Why has he done this? Not David. David said very well, the Lord will not let me build this house, but I will put aside all the gold and all the silver and all the wood and all the materials and I will store them all. I will go through the whole area and I will collect everything I can and I will put it all ready for my son to build this house. No wonder David, at the end of his life, could truly say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He wrote another psalm which I find is an amazing psalm. I think all of you know it very well. It is the 27th psalm. And in that psalm he said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers came upon me to eat up my flesh, even mine adversaries and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise up against me, even then will I be confident. One thing have I desired. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his holy temple. Now you're looking into the heart of David. He goes on to speak about his father and his mother forsaking him and everything else. But he had this one thing, you said to me, seek your face. And my heart said to you, thy face will I seek. A psalm was written many years later, not by David. But it was written about David. And, it's, and this is how it goes. You know it. It's the 132nd psalm. Lord, remember for David all his afflictions, how he sweared unto the Lord and bowed unto the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my own house, nor go up into my own bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord, a tabernacle for the mighty one of Jacob. And then it goes on, for the Lord hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. My dear friends, this man after God's own heart is a man or a woman whose whole life is centered in the Lord, centered in the purpose of the Lord, centered in the burden of the Lord. Whatever is the burden of the Lord is their burden. Whatever is on the heart of the Lord is on their heart. This is the man that God seeks out. There's a very beautiful little phrase in one when the Lord said, I have sought after a man that will do all my will. And the, in Hebrew the word will there is in the plural. 
all my will whatever it is that's on my heart he'll do it do you begin to see the difference between Saul and David you see Saul had so much that was noble and decent about him but he didn't do the will of the Lord the wills of the Lord he couldn't wait So, my dear friends, here we come to the end of this little study here. This is David. He brings the ark of the Lord home to Jerusalem. He is not permitted to build the house of the Lord, but at least he is able to do one thing. That ark of the Lord, that ark of the covenant, represents the very presence of God. Far more important than even the tent of meeting is that ark of the covenant. David brings it home. He prepares all the materials for the building of the house of the Lord. Truly, David fell. But he also repented. So we lead David tonight and we leave him with the very last words that are on his lips which to me just sum up the whole of his life. You will find it in 2, the second book of Samuel, verse 23. These are the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, and the man who was raised on high said, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was upon my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, There shall come one that rules over men, one that rules righteously in the fear of God. He shall be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds when the tender grass springs out of the earth to clear shining after rain. Verily, my house is not so with God. Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for it is all my salvation and all my desire. I think it is a most wonderful grace of God to be given to any servant of the Lord or to any child of God to die with this upon their lips. I imagine that the way you die and the very last things you say virtually sum up your whole life. Then whatever it is that was the burden of your life will finally come out when you have very little time and so it is with David he died talking about Jesus in one sense his whole life has been wrapped up with Jesus with the Lord Jesus centered in the Lord Jesus 
all to do with the fulfillment of God's purpose to bring a Messiah. The whole thing, even the temple of the Lord, even Jerusalem, the obtaining of Jerusalem, even the pacifying of the land, it's all to do with the coming of the Messiah. And now when he dies, it's all to do with the Lord Jesus. Well, my dear friend, who do you want to be? Saul or David? And if you want to be David, I have another question. Are you prepared for the cost? There is a price attached to this following of the Lord and being of this kind of character may God give us the grace to say Lord I will follow you whatever the cost let's pray Lord we want to call upon you together you know our heart You put a choice before us, Lord. We can be either a Saul or a David. Lord, will you help us by your grace to be David? Only by your Spirit can you do that work in us, Lord. But there's not one of us that you cannot do it in. And all that grace of yours and all that power of your Holy Spirit is made available to us to bring us to that throne. Lord, have dealings with us in the quietness of our own heart. Don't let us escape this kind of message. Have dealings with us, Lord. Pursue us by your Holy Spirit until we're ready to follow you. Holy. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.